This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Hey guys, appreciate you checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show. But before we get to today's guest, who is Kevin O'Neill, just wanted to give you a heads up. There's going to be some cursing in this show. And just in case you're around some kids, you don't want them to hear some F-bombs, uh, you might want to wear headphones. Without further ado, it's KO. I think it's a very high percentage. Hmm. I really do. There's lots of ways of covering it up. There's lots of ways to... As a head coach, keep your fingerprints off it. I think the NCAA, one of the one of the better things they've done is tried to crack down a little bit on some of the cheating. Yeah. But a lot of times they don't really want to know. A lot of times it's, you know, there's all kinds of cheating. Academic cheating, fraud, changing transcripts, giving cash, cars. You know, to me, one of the biggest ones is making arrangements for family members to fly to away games or fly in for home games. That goes on all the time. And I remember Eric Snow, yeah. who had a great habit of coming through the lane, and if a guy was sitting there to take a charge, he'd stick his knee up in their face. And he did it to Ben Wallace. Wrong and guy cut to do ben. it to. I'll never forget Ben coming over. I said, you all right, buddy? He goes, we ain't losing this fucking game, KO, I'll tell you that. This is the Give Me a Sense Podcast. Here's Mike Yale. Oh, welcome to the show. If you've been checking us out, appreciate you guys coming back. All the new folks, welcome aboard. We are all about sports stories. We've had coaches, players, broadcasters. They come on the show. They talk about their careers, some of the highs and the lows the big moments from their playing careers, maybe even some big breaks for some broadcasters. And I know I say this every single show, but I can't thank you enough for the feedback that we've been getting on Twitter. Love hearing from you guys and, and really greatly appreciate you guys spreading this uh, show on social media. It is a huge help. I know I've said this every single show, a one-man band kind of pushing this thing out. And don't forget, subscribe to the show. It's really easy. You can do it on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you're checking out these podcasts. And you can always go back and check out previous shows because none of the material is actually dated. So you'll be able to enjoy them really at any point. And if you uh, haven't had, I, you know what, I actually haven't had a broadcaster on the show in a while. So I actually have a couple recommendations for some of our previous guests. Tony Reale from PTI, Kevin Connors, who does SportsCenter, great story that he had. Beto Duran, if you're interested in the play-by-play and really a, a tremendous grime. Deuces Rogers, one of my good buddies uh, who I worked with at ESPN, who's now in Philadelphia. Uh, I don't even know how we got on it, but we ended up talking about OJ Simpson for an extended period of time, which was uh, entertaining, at least for me. So encourage you guys to go back to check out some of those shows. But today, it's a friend, a colleague, a guy I've wanted to have on the show for a while. So we're making it happen today because he's actually in San Francisco, analyst for the Pac-12 Network. Spent about 25 years as a college coach, stints with Marquette, Tennessee, Arizona, USC, not to mention a decade in the NBA, head coach with the Raptors, an assistant with the Pacers, the Pistons. Kevin O'Neill, KO is with me. Did I, am I forgetting any NBA teams? Do I have them they're, covered? They're all forgettable, but... 
No, you've missed a couple. No, that's all right. It's all good. Well, we'll, well, I'm sure you got some stories I missed a couple years along the way myself. <laughs> Just checking out there. I actually, you know what's crazy? You and I have similar taste in television shows. I know you've been on Billions, which I haven't gotten, gotten on to. But I, I it just I thought of it because I mentioned Deuces, Rod, Deuces Rogers and his show. He uh, is a big fan. Well, we were kind of enthralled in the O.J. Simpson thing. And not for nothing. I mean, we're he's one of my closest friends. We spent years together um, at ESPN. And it's funny. He mentioned O.J. And, and my buddy Deuces is an African-American male. And it, it got to the point, and, and you're obviously older than I am, but I remember being in high school around that time with O.J., and just the the cultural divide in this country and it's crazy to me now because all these shows have come out the 30 for 30s fx yeah. you watch some of those oj shows i've watched a couple of them they're kind of redundant to me i can't get enough of it yeah i don't know why that is do you, do you ever it's kind of like the kennedy thing with who killed kennedy yeah. and yeah i could see that could lee rv oswell have really done it it's uh it's an american tradition to try to have uh conspiracy theories about everything glorify the uh some of the crazies. Yeah. Uh, which is... Evil cells. Yeah. Yeah. Do you reckon... <laughs> that is actually true. I, I bring up the fact that Deuces is African-American because when I was, like, remember watching it, it was crazy. Because even if you watch these 30 for 30s and these FX shows now, you could see just sort of how society was divided. Really, yeah. you know, the, the African-American community, the white community, and the split that was there. And I almost felt awkward asking Deuces, like, hey, did you think he was guilty? And he just came out of the room and goes, are you kidding me? He's like, I thought that dude was was really guilty. I can't believe people thought he was innocent. Um, do you actually remember? Remember that? Like, oh, I remember. The, I watched the trial. Were you was, like glued to the television? Uh, not really glued to it, but I, you know, I was checking it out. Where, where were you at that point? Were you? Oh, I was. I'm trying to think. What year was that? That must have been '98 ish or so. It had to have been right because I was '98. I would have been coaching at '97, '98. Uh, yeah, Northwestern. Northwestern. Because let me think about '98, '90. Because I was, yeah, I, was in, I was freshman in high school, so it was like '97 or something along those lines. That's crazy to me. Yeah, it's, it seems like it was longer ago than that because there's so much said about it and done about it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Do you? All right. So you're at Northwestern at the time, and that is one of the stops that I forgot about while I was listing some of your uh, your coaching stops. Uh, Northwestern. That's the summertime. It's the trial. Do you like? What's the summer like for you? As well, at that time, you could travel uh, six weeks recruiting. Yeah. So you're on the road for about six straight weeks. But I can remember watching the trial and catching up on it and stuff like that. If I was the prosecution, I'd be like, damn, I screwed this up. Yeah. Because yeah. they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think everybody thought O.J. was guilty, regardless if they were black or white. But obviously he wasn't. No. <laughs> they said They said no. Is that um, all right? So you're it's you're at Northwestern at the time. I actually want to rewind here because you you have a, an interesting path because obviously a ton of years at the college level, um, you know, basically a decade at the NBA level as well. Um, I, you actually started coaching high school, correct? Yeah, I was teaching uh, sixth grade and coaching high school basketball in Hammond, New York, a little I, small town. All right, so for anyone who doesn't. Like, and I, I get this, not everyone gets Pac-12 Network that's listening to this show. And I had Lamar Heard on the other day, and I, I had said at the end of that show that there are times when we finish up a 10- or 12-hour day here in our studio, and we end up finishing the show and still hanging out after because we just can't stop laughing. There's, It's a ton of fun that we have here. Um, 
<laughs> last You're, night might have, been, might have been the most fun we had in a long, long now you are you realize, most laughs anyway you realize that you're the biggest reason why why we why we have these these fun moments because you give us like these 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 situations on air um i have on my computer i'm using uh, i'm recording this podcast on my work computer but my personal computer i have a clip it was the first year you had worked with us at pac-12 network yeah. um I, you know what i'm just gonna say that the joke was so I, look i'm juvenile any of my close friends will tell you i'm a three-year-old i have I have I'm very You're immature. that old? You're lucky. Yeah, no, I am I am very immature uh in a lot of ways, but there was like a running joke it was the it was the women's tournament which uh conference tournament for the Pac-12 which happens to be the week before the men's tournament every right. single year. Right. So, you know, this was our it must have been either our first or second. No, no, no. What am I talking about? So it was the third year for us, right? Because you've been with us for three years now. Yep. Or, okay, so actually yep. your second year then at Pac-12 Network. And I, I want to give everyone a sense of – give me a sense. I want to give everyone a sense of what our, our Adidas touchdown room, which is our green room, is like. Football season, it's all the football dudes in a room with eight televisions, and it's there's a lot of testosterone. Basketball season, it's usually just me – KO and another analyst. For a while, it was Lamar Hurd. Sometimes it's Matt Muehlbach. Don McLean's also uh, here with us as well. We have we have a good time, but it's it's a very different vibe. For the women's tournament, it's Ashley Adamson who's been on this podcast. Uh, Ron, <laughs> Roz Goldenwood is and Ann Schatz who is doing some play by play with us. Anyway, so there's there's a term in basketball, and I think everyone knows it's you know backdoor penetration. Yeah. So I'm a child, and I was told this story, and I. Roz had mentioned backdoor penetration on one of their shows. So I couldn't stop laughing. The crew on the set couldn't stop laughing and, and whatever. I mean, it is what it is. So KO says to Lamar and I, uh, before we head out onto the set, hey, I'm going to get you guys. You don't know when it's going to come, but I'm going to get you guys. KO gets onto the set, says backdoor penetration, looks me dead in the eye. I don't flinch. I don't flinch because I know it's now I'm like, all right, dude, I got you. I got you. I think, K.O., you got upset that I didn't laugh. You proceeded to say backdoor penetration while describing plays three or four times within four, I don't know, 30, 35 seconds. I I was crying on the set and couldn't get to the break. But that's how much fun we have here. We're going to go all over the map on this podcast. Did you ever think while you were coaching you'd ever be a, a member of the media? I don't even know if you consider no. yourself a member of the media, but you, you kind of I, I really uh... – you know, I thought I'd coach forever. You know, we all think we're invincible, or you know, but things change in your life, whether it's uh, coaching or serving your country or running a business or whatever it is. Um, I didn't really have any interest in doing it. Yeah. But you know, when I got fired at USC, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, you know, that's something to do during the winter time, during the basketball season. I didn't know what else I was gonna do. I was getting paid for a couple of years, so I really didn't care at that point. Um, but I, I've really enjoyed working at the Pac-12 Network because of the people that are here. Yeah, we have a good like time. Like, if, if it wasn't, you know, like Don McLean and Lamar, yourself, McGrady, our statistician, it's, it's a good crew of people that don't take themselves too seriously, which I think most of the media takes themselves way too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I see some of these guys in the media. That's what, I really don't consider myself a media guy. I just sit around and talk basketball with Yam and McLean. That's the way I look at it. But I see some of these guys in the media that think it's all about them. Yeah. And it's an absolute joke. First of all, none of them pissed a drop doing anything other than sitting around talking. And the bottom line with it all is 
the stars of the show are the players and the coaches, the product, and the fans that are out there. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not the people talking about the games. Yeah. Um, to me, I like to have fun doing it, and I do, and I'm going to keep having fun till the day I can't breathe anymore. And then I, I really enjoy talking basketball with people that know what they're doing. Do you, do you miss coaching at all? Because this is I miss, a vet. I miss, I miss parts of coaching. What, all right, what parts? Because I think... I miss the actual practices and the games. Who said practice? Who said practice? <laughs> the practices and the games. Inside joke, yeah. Uh, I've enjoyed a lot of the players over the years. I've hated a lot of the players over the years. I'd, I'd never, ever, ever enjoyed the parents of players. I think it's, it's now the, the more we go on, the more ludicrous it becomes. The recruiting process is really a demeaning process where you beg guys and tell them they're better than they are. And, you know, I got tired of that. So I don't miss any of that stuff. And I don't miss dealing with athletic directors who I consider kind of the lowest form of life imaginable to man. <laughs> because what it, what it, always, it always comes back on the coach no matter what happens. Yeah. You know, no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter what happens, athletic directors get to at least stay protected for three coaches in each sport. Did you uh, you get along with any ADs? I did. I got I actually got along pretty well with a lot of the ADs uh, the, I worked for. Oh, okay, I was going to say yeah. the ADs that you actually worked for. Yeah, is where I wanted to yeah. go with that. And and there's some good ADs out yeah. there. Yeah, they're few and far between because now they've all become these business guys that came up through the ticket office. Most of them never wore a jock. Most of them never coached a team. Most of them just, all they want to do is cover their own ass. That's why I have a problem with guys that don't stick up for their coaches. All right, did you, all right, when you're coaching, because you mentioned some of the players and you had some players that you didn't like, you had some players that you did like, the recruiting aspect of it. Because to me, I actually find it really interesting because I've talked to a lot of coaches, even on this show or and coaches that I've worked with. They have a staff. You have a bunch of guys. They go out. You're recruiting yeah. coordinators. They do this. First time I worked with you and I had asked you about recruiting, you said, no, I, I do it. I'm the one who goes out there. I think that's pretty different. And you you were an assistant for a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of coaches as well, where you yep. were the one that was going out there and yep. doing the recruiting. So take me through the philosophy of why you did it that way. You were the one making the in-home visits for all your guys. You know what? I, I've i had good staffs and bad staffs. I had to do less when I had a good staff and more when I had a bad staff. But when it got right down to it, I'm the one that's going to be putting these guys in and out of the game. And I'm the one that their mom and dad are going to call crying about shots and time and, you know, you're not, you're not starring my son. I'll, so when it gets right down to it, I think the head coach needs to be heavily involved in the recruiting process, at least at some point, because you want to know who you're coaching. You want to know who you're dealing with on a daily basis because there's going to be ups and downs for every kid's career. And even when it's good for the kids sometimes, it's bad for the parents. So it's – I always thought I wanted to have a hands-on approach to recruiting. And I saw recruiting as a necessary evil to win because nobody wins without good players. That's all there is to it. All right, what's the what's the secret sauce in getting good guys to come to your program? Because the competition you know, is, is significant. Well, when it, when it gets right down to it, you got to decide what your program is going to be like. Um. First of all, as a coach, you got to decide, am I going to cheat or am I not going to cheat? Yeah. So that right there decides, probably eliminates over half the country 
of top 100 players because a lot of people got their hand out. And then the then you got to decide who you want to coach. The only time in my career that I didn't recruit character and integrity and toughness was when we had two blank recruiting classes because of violations at USC. And I took a bunch of junior college and four-year transfers. I had 11 new guys in one year. And it, it told me, especially after I got fired, don't skimp on character, integrity, good guys, team guys, people willing to be coached hard, because that's that's what got us. We just didn't have guys that, you know, wanted to do that. They were there for the wrong reasons. Who who are some of those guys that stood out to you over your tenure? Because you said, hey, I like some guys. When you were doing the actual recruiting of them, when you said, you know what, this this guy could play for me, because I'm sure yeah. you had to take guys that you didn't think. See, I really could. I really liked finding guys that had kind of an obscure path to being a good player, had been through some adversity. Give me an example, like what? Um, you don't have to get like I recruited a guy, Tony Miller. Okay. Uh, as a point guard at Marquette. He was an All-American football player, recruited by Michigan, Ohio State, but wanted to play basketball. And I love guys with a football background because they're tough. Their coaches have probably kicked their asses every single day for four years, and they've had their ass kicked on the field a lot, so they were tougher. Or, you know, finding guys in prep schools that, you know, were trying to get a second chance. Guys like that, I enjoyed recruiting. And if they were good guys, and there's good guys and bad guys, if they were good guys, I enjoyed recruiting those kind of, or coaching those kind of guys. All right, you have, I think, a, a good sense of of people pretty quickly. I think you can you can <clears throat> just read people really well from what I've seen and, and worked with you. You get a JUCO guy, maybe a rough path. You said, hey, a second chance. We see this all the time in college basketball where guys quote need that second chance. How do you decide this guy? is actually a good dude. I mean, you sit down with him, there, and you got to figure out what's the line that he's feeding you right. and what's actually genuine. Right. Well, I, I think it's, that's, it's like the same way I decide about whether I like somebody or not or want to hang out with them or not. If you spend some time around... See, a lot of the recruiting process has gotten accelerated, so you don't get to know these guys the way you used to get to know them, yeah. like home visits and stuff like that. But I think you can get a sense for... Again, I'll go back to USC. For the first time, I took some guys that I knew were questionable characters because we needed talent, and my ass was up against the wall to try to win. And if I had to do it over, I would have got fired recruiting good guys as well as get fired recruiting bad guys. But even the guys I took that were questionable, I knew. I was like, okay, this guy's a dick, but I'm going to take him because I need to try to win here. And you know, That's what yeah. it came down to. Yeah. All right, you've mentioned USC a couple times. Um, I, I sort of know the story fairly well, um, how you get that job. But I don't think people understand. We all watch the NCAA tournament as fans. And you get that when certain coaches and teams make a run, that coach all of a sudden becomes a hot commodity. Or there's an assistant, right. at, you know, a top assistant at another program, and they, become on the, they get on the short list. What are actual – searches like i've heard the search firms i've heard ad's reach out i guess it depends on the school but in your experience how does a how does a coach get a job at a power five school when i was when i got the marquette job i was the only assistant that interviewed for the marquette job at the final four in i guess it was in seattle or tacoma yes seattle i guess i was the only assistant i didn't think i had any chance at the job i ended up getting it how do you know who else is interviewing 
Just scuttlebutt. Okay. So know. just through the work. But they don't yeah. tell you in the process. So you don't even, because you said, hey, I was the only assistant that interviewed. Yeah, I, I knew I was the only assistant. Hmm. I was told that by the athletic director. Uh, when I went from Marquette to Tennessee, we had taken the program from zero to the Sweet 16, won a couple league titles. And then I had seven offers at Power 5 schools at the end of the year where people came after me. And then, you know, USC, when I got the USC job, Mike Garrett was doing his own search. He, he didn't hire – these search firms are a joke anyway. Yeah. But he didn't hire a search firm. Uh, I have no – I got the job because Jamie Dixon and Long Kruger turned it down. My name got to Mike somehow. He called me. I interviewed with Mike for 40 minutes, and he gave me the job. I mean, it just... So he calls you, flies you in, you sit down for 40 minutes. Yeah, 40 minutes. And he offers you the job on the spot, or says, hey, I'll give you a bus? Uh, he tells me he's going to call me. He called me when I was in the car headed back to the hotel. Wow. So, I mean... When the phone rings and you're driving back, you just leave. Are you feeling like, damn, I'm going to get this, or, oh, this is... I had good. no idea. 40 minutes isn't long. But Mike was that kind of guy. I mean, so, some guys, when they... I mean, some of the interview processes become so uh, dragged out and so, yeah. you know, diluted because you have search committees and search firms and this and that. But Mike was one of those guys that, you know, he he did everything on gut feeling. And, you know, I was, went home, picked up my wife back in upstate New York, flew out. Started the job two days later. What do they ask you? What are the questions they ask in these interviews? Mike didn't ask me anything. Mike said, tell me why I should hire you. Wow. What would you say? I said all kinds of shit, you know, of course. <laughs> but but I, mean, how do, I, told, you, I said, listen, I've got experience. You know, yeah. I, I'm used to coaching in tough situations. Because they're coming off of. No, uh, we were getting ready, yeah. getting ready to go into go the into same. Go into it. Yeah. I mean, that was all looming. Yeah. Postseason ban, loss of scholarships, all that happened. We lost some guys to the NBA. We lost a bunch of guys to, like Derek Williams, Momo Jones, and uh, Solomon Hill. They were all signed at USC and left before I got there. Went to Arizona and went to a you know an elite eight. So we basically had two blank recruiting classes, and it came down. I said, "Listen, I'm I'm going to be able to handle some of the losing till we get to the winning." And I said, "Obviously, there's going to be some sanctions here." I really don't give a shit about that. Yeah. I don't have any problem with dealing with that. Part of the game. So that was – that's good enough. I mean, did you – is that an attractive job, though? Like, why would you I take I think USC is a good job. No, no, no. Not USC, well, but, like, knowing that there's going to be problems. Like, why, why would I you – Because I wasn't offered any other job at so, the time. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's like, hey, when I'm going to go – A little supply-demand thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a job. You got a job for me. I'll take it. Uh, how do you prepare for those interviews? I didn't prepare at all. Are you kidding me? You see what I do with <laughs> TV. You know what? Actually, yeah, you're right. We And to give people a, a better understanding of, of KO, I've worked now. It's It's been a few years we've worked on set. I have never seen Kevin O'Neill with a piece of paper in front of him. I've never seen him ask for a statistic. It truly is. It's actually really impressive because you just go off a of feel. You watch the games. You and I watch the, the ticker. And you watch it. <laughs> While we're watching the games, I'm watching the ticker. There's been a few times where KO, Kate will actually say a stat, and I go, "Where'd you get that stat from?" He goes, oh, "I saw it on the on the, uh, on the ticker on the bottom ticker, line." We're in the touchdown room. <laughs> and I'm see. I think by. people get all bogged down with stats. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, when, when, an, when an analyst or an announcer is talking stats, I'm thinking to myself, I can open up my computer and see all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. I want to hear what you think about the game or why you think this happened. And that's anything. Like 100%. I'm a huge UFC fan. You know, so when somebody starts telling me, well, this guy's reach is two inches long, I don't give a shit about that. Yeah. I want to know why this guy is beating this other guy's ass or what his move is or what he's going to do. All right. Well, how about this, though? So you don't prepare for because you're I've going, prepared for a couple of interviews. So and that's where yeah, I'm going with this, because yeah. you can't do that at the beginning. You have years and I mean, decades of right. experience heading into that USC job. It's kind of like, look, I've been through that. I've been through the wars. Get what it's I like actually in the NBA. brought a booklet with me. For the USC interview that I had put together, I said, wow. "Mike, you want to take a look at this?" He goes, "I don't want to see that shit." Nice. What so was we just the, talk. What's in the booklet? Uh, you know, like plans for the first hundred days. You know, stuff like that. You might. <laughs> okay, President. No, I'm not. I'm not. No, no. <laughs> we won't get into that. No, I don't want to go there. Uh, so, so all right. So you you prep for those, but all right. What about earlier in your career? You know, like the Marquette job, Northwestern. Like, what are you doing to prepare? as a young coach for a head coaching job? Well, when I when I knew I was going to interview with the athletic director, Bill Cords down in Tacoma, we were in Seattle at the Final Four, I just, more than anything, called as many people as I could to find out about Bill's background, where he was from, and then the history at Marquette, which everybody knows about Al McGuire and all that, yeah, but yeah. There, you know, there's a lot of history at Marquette and you're going into a situation where it's a non-football school. Uh, I knew it was a Jesuit university, stuff like that. But when I went in there and talked to Bill Cords, I probably didn't use any of that. You know, I, it just comes getting to know each other and then making a decision from that point by the AD. How did you do? How did you fare with the Jesuits? Because I, I went. To, I loved them. I was going to say because that is, if you would have said you were going to go to a Catholic school. I would think that KO needs to be around Jesuits. Well, I'm an everyday Catholic. Yeah. People wouldn't believe that. Church all the time. I sin, so I go to church every day. <laughs> I'm I'm into forgiveness, not permission. And so I loved it. I went to yeah. I I used to go to the Jez Res and eat lunch all the time with these dudes. They were drinking I was they were drinking keg beer at, at noon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I loved my experience at Marquette. And the Jesuits, I really, really like them yeah, a lot. They're, they're they're bright guys, and you know, I went to a Jesuit college at Fordham in New York, and it's funny because immediate. And for those who aren't you know religious or don't understand the whole Jesuit thing, so there's different. Uh, uh, what's the best way to describe it? Um, going to say sex yeah s-e-c-t-s yes of of priests not sex yes sex so yeah let's not get carried away yeah yeah no um i'm wondering if my mic actually was able to pick up the difference (laughs) in what we were saying but so they uh the the jesuits are probably the most liberal of the no question of all the priests and all the religious uh orders so to speak and i actually and as soon as i'm saying it i'm thinking about you and i'm like Oh, geez, like, hey, must have done really well. I, at least at Fordham, the Bush beer truck would come onto oh, campus yeah. and just unload yeah. cases and cases of beer, uh, which we thought, you know, as students, you're like, oh, that's great, you know. The, that Jesu- awesome for the you. Jesuits are, like, seriously the kindest yeah. people. They're, our chaplain at the time, and he ended up doing the job for over 60 years, was Father William Kelly, who's still alive in his late 90s. He was one of the greatest people I ever met in my whole life. 
and he saw some shit coming down. Yeah. I mean, some wild stuff. And he was always the most even-keeled, calming influence for players and coaches that you could ever be around. No kidding. Yep. Wow. Yep. Did you was that typical where you'd have a a, a priest travel with the team? Yeah, oh, he went everywhere with us. He was he came to practice every single day. He counseled the kids every day. He counseled me many times. Just a great, great yeah. guy. Yeah. How how did he respond if he's at practice watching your demeanor with players? He didn't care. Didn't care. No. You know it's because I was thirty two at the time. I was. Wilder than a shit house rat, I can tell you that. Yeah, I, well, look, I, I think anyone who's listening to this podcast or have seen our shows, they understand yeah. that. Do you ever, you ever coach a game at St. Bonaventure? I'm trying to think. No. Okay, so the St. Bonaventure there, A10. In Olean. Yeah, exactly. Olean, New, New York. York exactly, yep. which is not a place that you want to be trapped for. Guy for Mark Schmidt has done a freaking really yeah, good yeah, job. They've here. had some issues up there. The only reason why I bring it up is because Fordham at the time when I was in school, Bob Hill, who I know you know, yep. was was the head coach. He was coming off a tenure with uh, the San Antonio Spurs at the time, and this is pre-Tim Duncan. Actually, I think it was they they have that awful season, a bunch of injuries. David Robinson's and down, Sean Duncan. Elliott, and then and they, they get Duncan. Duncan. So yeah. and then Bob Hill gets out, Greg Popovich goes in, Pop becomes their head coach, and the legendary. rest is history. Yeah, legendary legendary. Uh, legendary Hall of Fame coach. He becomes um, <laughs> he becomes uh, he becomes their guy. So that the rest is history. Bob Hill comes to Fordham. I bring it up because at at St. Bonaventure they got the monks that are there. Yeah, I've never seen this before, and I was so caught off guard. They are so the fan base there is is pretty intense. Yeah. The monks were actually cursing out our players. Yeah, and I thought it was the coolest thing. I'm ever. not surprised. I mean, I'm 18, 19 years old. I'm calling these games. I'm going, dude. That's a monk wearing like the full monk yeah. deal, and he is cursing out. Well, if we don't, players, if we so. don't think these dudes sin too, I mean, yeah, they're all humans. Yeah, I don't care what you're yeah. wearing, a robe or a t-shirt. You're probably going to sin at some point. Yeah. I, look, I want to I want to ask you about some NBA stuff uh, okay. coming up here in just a bit here. But a couple minutes ago, you said. Your philosophy, you got to decide, hey, am I going to cheat or am I going to play it right? Ballpark it for me. How rampant is is some of the the not on the up and up dealings with a lot of these coaches um, around college basketball? You think it's a I, high percentage? I, or? I think it's a very high percentage. Hmm. I really do. And it's uh, there's lots of ways of doing it. Yeah. There's lots of ways of covering it up. There's... Lots of ways to, as a head coach, keep your fingerprints off it. I think the NCAA, one of the one of the better things they've done, is tried to crack down a little bit on some of the cheating. Yeah. But a lot of times they don't really want to know. A lot of times it's, you know, there's all kinds of cheating: academic cheating, fraud, changing transcripts, giving cash, cars. You know, to me, one of the biggest ones is making arrangements for family members to fly to away games or fly in for home games. That goes on all the time, and it's you know it's it's kind of become accepted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because because for the coaches who are doing it right, it's almost I mean not for nothing, it's unfair. But you make your decision. Okay, I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to be able to recruit that player. But then or this how, player. how do you not for nothing? How do you how do you win then? Because you're you're up against it, right? I right. mean, all of a sudden, this is a 
And this is a business, and I don't know if this comes down to relationships with athletic directors, where you just say, I mean, ads have to know who's kind of doing what. I think, I, I think, yeah, they know. Yeah, everyone has. Here's the stories through the grapevine of what's happening at different programs. Right. You have to then go to say to yourself and your ad, you have to have that relationship. Hey, if I'm going to lose here because I can't go and do what program X is doing, I, I got to get a little bit of longer leash, right? I mean, th- those conversations have to. There, happen. There's no such thing as a longer leash. So, what's the incentive of doing it right then? Because I, I can go to bed at night yeah, and know I don't have to worry about some asshole who I gave 100 bucks to turning around and saying, yeah, they took care of me at Arizona. They took care of me at Marquette. They took- yeah. I never wanted to have that. The way I coach guys, like guys that work hard and come on time and do their job and care about the team, I've had great relationships with players like that. The do- ones that don't want to do that, I'm your worst nightmare because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hunt you down every single day and remind you you're not doing things right by the team. Not for nothing, KL. I think the players who did work hard, you were on those guys too. No, I was. <laughs> I'll tell you that Nikola Vucevic who's playing yeah, in the NBA now. now. Make him paid well. I can't tell you how many times I threw him out of practice because I knew he could do better than he was doing many times. Yeah. And I had and still have a great relationship with Nikola Vucevic. Because he wanted to get better. See, the, the trouble is nowadays, a lot of these guys don't want to be coached. They want to be pampered. Between their high school and their AAU system, all they've done is had their ass kissed from the time they were 10 years old right through now. And then all of a sudden, reality is this. Maybe you're not the best player on this team. Yeah. What's, um, how do you define the role of a coach then? I think the role of the coach is to demand excellence from his players in everything they do. I mean, if that to condense it to what I think the role of a coach is, that's it for me. Okay. When you say everything they do, do you mean everything in basketball or because these basketball, are basketball, academics, acting like citizens. <laughs> yeah. You know, not not being out raping, pillaging, and plundering. I yeah. mean, those things to me are important. What, yeah, being a, a normal human being. Um, yeah. You, you ever find Fancy your, that. Normal yeah, human seriously. being. Hey, you ever find yourself in situations where you had to go, hey, guys, you're off the team? Yeah, I've, got, of, I've, gotten rid of, I've gotten rid of guys that started 55 straight games. I've gotten rid of guys that were leading scorers, second leading scorers. I mean, sometimes it gets to a point. Like, I was the ultimate at giving guys second, third, fourth chances. If I believed you have a good had a good heart, but if you go to a certain point, and every coach has that point, where I can't tolerate this, like certain things guys did didn't bother me at all. Yeah, I, you know, but certain other things really bothered me, and they were the things that told me they weren't interested in winning; they were interested in themselves. I, I got it, and I can't believe I don't know the answer to this. Um, especially with regard to you, because I've worked with you now long enough to, I feel like I should know, but are you a, like, I know you're an intense guy. I know you're a competitive guy. And I know you're a guy that has no problem getting on another dude if he's not doing his job. But are you the, if you're, if you're on time, you're late guy, or are you like, I'm trying to, cause you just said to me, Hey, some things you demand that, Uh, that I had basically a few rules. What were they? Be on time. Okay. Don't be an asshole. And I'm deciding if you're an asshole. 
<laughs> like, I didn't want to have all these rules, no. like, if you do this. Dress code. No, 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 none of that. None of that, you know. Did you care about music in the uh in No. The no, I didn't care about any of that. I didn't care about phones in the locker room no. unless we were having a meeting. I didn't, you know, I didn't care if a guy walked in with a clown suit on as long as he put his <laughs> shit on and came out and practiced. <laughs> but I did care about if a guy didn't treat a teammate right. Yeah. That bothered me. Or if a guy cared more about his playing time and his stats, that bothered me than winning. What did your assistants do? Because you said to me earlier, hey, I had some some staffs that were great, others that weren't yeah. as much. And and I think it needs to be clear here because I think someone listening might say, well, KO, isn't that on you? Because they're your staff. But yeah, don't no, you it was to, on me. But don't you have to carry yeah. over sometimes in some situations, guys, where you don't really yeah. have a choice? Yeah, when I, was, when I took the job at USC, I had to keep all the guys that were there. Um, in retrospect, it was a mistake. Yeah. But in that situation, I didn't really have a choice. Uh, I I never wanted to fire an assistant. I've only fired a couple ever because that put a stigma on that guy in his career that it, something that was happening on our team was his fault and not my fault because – Ultimately, a head coach is responsible for everything sure. that goes on within your program. But the bottom line is you're only as good as your staff because you need those guys to be in touch with the players, in touch with what's going on, to know the little things that are going on, to recruit players. Many times you have assistants who the only thing they're interested in is their next job instead of just doing their job. So it's... It's kind of a it's a tough thing. It's hard to find like it's hard to find selfless players. It's really hard to find selfless assistants because there's a certain look at me type thing. Sure. Like one thing that drove me fucking crazy is assistants run up down the sidelines on the bench. Sit your ass down. <laughs> when you're the head coach, you can run all over all you want. Otherwise, sit down and do whatever we want you to do keep the keep the offensive chart, or the, you know all that kind of stuff that guys like to do. I don't. How, how do you how do you make the jump to the NBA? Uh, I knew Jeff Van Gundy for a long time. Yeah, I was. At North... How did you know Jeff through? I thought you knew Jeff through the Knicks. No, no, I knew Jeff way before I was at the Knicks. I used oh, to be okay. in a. I started a coaching group with Larry Shiat and Scott Duncan and a bunch of guys way back when I was at Arizona. And we kind of kept that group intact. What's a coaching like? I'm I'm thinking like a book club, yeah, <laughs> kind of like that. Like once a year we get together for oh, a okay, weekend, cool. nice, exchange ideas and yeah. stuff. And I met Jeff originally. We invited him one for a weekend, and then he came back every year. And then he and I would get together. I w- Jeff's the most brilliant coach I've ever been around, in terms of like the whole package, and one of the most brilliant human beings I've ever been around. Yeah. Uh, but we we talked a lot. We talk a lot of basketball. I would pick his brain, and when he had an opening with the Knicks, I talked to him about it, and ended up. I was actually climbing Machu Picchu at the time, <laughs> in South America in Peru, when Jeff sent me a, called me and left a message yeah. that he wanted to get together when I got back, and then I ended up getting together with Jeff, and I left Northwestern to go there with the wow. Knicks. Uh, are there? Is there a sense of nervousness when you go from the college level to the pro level, being around those guys? Yeah. Yeah, because it's a totally different game. 
And in college, the coach always knows the game better than the players. When I was with the Knicks, guys like Latrell Sprewell, yeah. Kurt Thomas, Larry Johnson, yeah, Othella Houston. Harrington, yeah. they knew the game better than I did. So in my first year, I was learning the whole time. How, how do you know that they know the game better? Like what's happening? Because I'm talking to them. I'm working them out. Yeah. We're talking about the game. I'm picking their brain. They're picking mine. And, and, and over the course of my time in the NBA, I, I worked with two great coaches, Jeff Van Gundy and Rick Carlisle. Sure. You know, they were – these guys are fantastic coaches, brilliant guys, all that. But aside from those two, I learned a hell of a lot of basketball from Ben Wallace, Cliff Robinson – Corliss Williamson, Mike Curry, guys like that that, you know, that just in the course of after a practice, okay, what do you think about this? Or what do you it was fascinating what those guys knew from their experience of playing the game. So which I never had. Yeah. All right. Can you give me an example of a conversation that you had with a Ben Wallace or, or one of those guys. I mean, bad, you know, those Pistons teams, geez, I mean, they, they had... We were you know, great defensively. I mean, Wallace yeah. was, what, when he was with you, back-to-back defensive player of the year, yeah. right? I mean, it Led was, the league in rebounding, led the league in block blocks, shots. Yeah, I mean, he was... He was Mike Curry player. was the most intelligent basketball player I was ever around. So, like, what, what, like, and I say this to a lot of analysts that I work with, you guys watch the game differently than fans, and... You take for granted what you know because you know it. Yeah. And I always say that, hey, you know, the best analysts are the ones that tell you something that, you know, you, you, you don't haven't know heard. About. You, you haven't, haven't heard. heard. Yeah. You know, those yeah. those are sort of those differentiators. And it's hard sometimes for newer analysts who come in and don't understand it because they think everyone knows what they yeah. already know. Yeah. So when you come into that situation when you're with the Pistons, like, what are you applying? Like, they're playing. What are they telling you that you can apply? I, I'll give you an example. We played in a – my first year with the Pistons, we played in a – my first year? No, my second year. Okay. We're in a first-round series against the Orlando Magic. And Tracy McGrady, for four games, like, you got to picture this. Before we start, we've sat down between the series, or before we start the series, and here's our pick-and-roll coverage up top. Here's our pick-and-roll co- You know, you go through, you got to book that thick. You give to the sure. players. Everybody crams it. He is killing our ass. Big time. Mike Curry comes to me after we lose to go down three to one. He said, "Ko, I got a suggestion." I said, "All right, let's hear it." Because he was killing us in high pick and roll. He said, "With the high pick and roll, how about if we switch when it's Cliff guarding the defender and double team when Ben's guarding the defender?" I said, "Okay, why the fuck would we do that?" <laughs> he said, "Because." This guy is settling in to a coverage. He's attacking our coverage. We haven't changed our coverage. We've stayed because we always used to say, we're just going to do what we do better. He said, but doing what we do better, we're going to lose this shit four to one. Wow. So we we had two days between games, and we changed our high pick and roll coverage completely. Completely. And we won the series. Came back from... One of the few teams to ever come back from three to one down and win the series. And it was because of what Mike Curry suggested. What? How difficult is that? Because you're essentially changing 
a defensive scheme that you guys have right. been running all season long. Yep. And you're doing it in two days. Yep. Um, if you didn't have intelligent guys, it would be hard. Yeah. But that group of guys we had, they could change pick and roll coverage. If we scored a basket, they could change it on their way back. You could you could tell them, jump up and say, we're going to blitz this pick and roll, and they would do it. No kidding. Yeah, these these guys were. You can't do that with every NBA team, right? No, and you can't. You can do it way more. You can't do it in college all right, at all. Years, college players can't grasp any of that. What year is that? 2002, one? Yeah, 2000. Like yeah, yeah. What was your last year in the NBA? Oh, damn. I don't know. 2000, uh, 2008. Eight? Okay, I was going to say eight. I was an assistant okay. with the Grizzlies. Um, so, all right. In that period of time, did you see the acumen of players change? In the NBA? Yeah. Um, only changed by the the player you had. Like, some players really understood the game. Gotcha. Some didn't. But most NBA players, like, they get a really bad rap. Most NBA players have a great grasp of the game of basketball. Is that surprising to – I don't want to say surprising, right? Because if you're in the league for a certain amount of years, you're going to pick up on things. How difficult with younger players is that? Because you just said, hey, college guys can't do it. It's a terrible it. learning curve for young guys. Especially now with the one yeah. and dones and these guys that are really young yeah. that have had that experience yet. You know what it is? The hardest part for these one and done guys anymore, Mike, is it's a lonely existence. Like when you're in college, yeah. everybody's patting you on the ass all the time. They want to spend time with you. They want your autograph. Now you become a rookie in the NBA. You're under the legal drinking age. You're on a nine-game road trip. You are in your hotel by yourself. You might fly one of your boys in to hang out. That's a lonely existence for these guys. And the learning curve is tremendously steep. From Unless they came out of a program where they were taught pick-and-roll coverage, taught, yeah. taught help defense, taught all those things. Otherwise, it's it's very – look at Jakob Pertles, hardly played at all, and he's yeah. – a very good player that came out of a very good system. It's it's a difficult jump. I want to ask you about lifestyle. Uh, I had heard this, what you had just said, and I think it's really interesting because not everyone gets that. Ala Abdel Nabi, who I worked with at NBA TV, he was actually a guest early on in this podcast. He had told me years ago, life as an NBA player is really lonely. He said it's it, it is not easy to the ex- he said exactly what you said you go and you're on the road with the team and sure you got buddies but you're in the hotels like nonstop yeah. you're just it's lonely and if you're taking care of your body which a lot of them don't yeah if you're really taking care of your body and preparing for your job like you should be you're not out every night I always said this about guys that went out all the time and I'm a guy that goes out all the time yeah <laughs> I've always said this about they never. They could play a back to back and not feel it, but with three games and four nights, that third game, their ass was kicked, and a lot of guys have drank and smoked their way out of the league, not taking care of their bodies. The ones that take care of their bodies, it's a hard job and a lonely job to do those things. All right. What What about the lifestyle as a coach? Like, do the co- are you are NBA coaching staffs are they relatively close? Not really. Really? No. I hung out I hung out by myself as an NBA coach <laughs> most of the time. No kidding. Yeah, it's, it was a job. It was a job. It, it, for me, it was. 
what, all right, when you're on the road, give me an idea of, of some of the tasks that you have as an assistant versus a head coach. In the NBA? In the NBA. Well, what was different for you? You're preparing probably two to three games. I always figured on an average you got four games a week to prepare for, on an average. Okay. Sometimes there's four and five nights. Or, so your prep, let's say you go on the road for a Tuesday game. Okay. Your prep had better be done by Sunday because you got to present, present all your stuff on Monday. you got to be ready for shoot-around on Tuesday, play the game Tuesday night. So the rest of the day on Tuesday after shoot-around, you forget about the game that night, I'm on to the next game. So you're always either one or two games. I tried to get two games ahead every time that I was preparing defensively sure. for stuff in the NBA. And, you know, then after the game you have all kinds of, you know, some head coaches wanted things different than others. Yeah. I mean, when I worked for Jeff, we never met. Never. Really? If you wanted to put something under Jeff's door, he'd read it. If he liked it, he'd do it. If he didn't like it, he didn't. And I was like that as a coach. I became like I, – yeah. I liked that management style. Uh, Rick Carlisle was a little bit more of a meeting guy, but not much. We'd talk on the phone after practice or after a game ten times in two hours, you know, stuff like that. Everybody's a little bit different, but there's always a recap of that game that has to be documented – because you're going to see that team again maybe in four weeks or six weeks or sure. nine weeks or whatever it was. All right. Uh, you told me this. You've coached great players. Uh, you told me Vince Carter was by far the best athlete, best player you've ever coached. Most talented guy. Most talented is the best way to describe Most talented guy ever. I mean, this guy would ride. People don't realize. Vince Carter would jump two and a half feet high on his jump shot. He could make threes that I – he could have been one of the greatest defenders in the history of the game. Vince just had a different personality than a guy like Michael Jordan or LeBron. He was every bit as talented and as good as those guys. But his disposition was such, like Vince was such a nice guy and such a sweetheart as a person, whereas Michael Jordan would kill anybody's ass LeBron does the same thing. I mean, he just had a diff- different disposition. Every bit as talented as those guys in every way. And still playing. Yeah, which is crazy to me. And I mean, still playing yeah. well. The other night I was watching a game with Memphis. And I think he had four blocks in the game. Oh, no, he's – You can tell. He's running out of gas a little bit. The first game I ever coached Vince, we were playing New Jersey. They were coming off a finals appearance. It was a home game. So is that kid, Kenyon. Yeah, they were, they were good. Yeah. We ran the same exact play, what I call the drop two, a post up for Vince in the okay. long post, 16 straight times to end the game. He scored on 10 of them. Wow. I mean, and they were loaded up to him. They were trying to block his shot. This guy was unbelievable. Is that Kenny Martin's assignment then? Would he? Would they? Richard Jefferson. Him, RG, I would, uh, Richard I Jefferson. Kenyon Martin. They, they tried. Matter. They tried to double him. When yeah. they tried to double him, he passed out of it. I mean, he was he was a fantastic player. Yeah, because Kenyon was their their like best defensive guy. Yeah, he was like their four. Yeah. Vince wasn't playing that, but I I'd, yeah. I'd go. Geez, what are you supposed they to? They tried. Do? They tried Kenyon on him. Jesus. Well, they put Kenyon on him. He just drove by him. <laughs> I mean, he this guy was phenomenal. <laughs> who's all right? Who's the guy then that maybe wasn't as talented in the NBA but did the most with Mike Curry? Yeah, this guy. Mike, he's a coach at Florida Atlantic yeah. now. 
He was a starter in the NBA for a long time. For us, he played 20, 22 minutes a game. Sure. Defensive stopper, great communicator, fantastic leader, not overly talented, tough as nails. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was an incredible, incredible professional NBA player. All right, I've said this. I, I started this show, and I said a decade in the in the NBA. Um, I want to ask you too about Toronto, but before, you know, what, I'll ask you about that first. You're with the Raptors. Um, what's it like when you're finally the guy there? Does it any change? Not really. I work the same. <laughs> so am- ko. <laughs> no, I work the same. I work the same amount of hours as an assistant as a head coach. Yeah. Um, Do you feel the pressure? I, I would think the pressure is different, though. Right? I didn't feel anything. I no just, kidding. I just wanted to do my job as well as I could. Do you feel uh, pressure at any of your stops? No. Maybe the first one at Marquette because they had such a tradition and you're just starting out and you want to do well. Yeah. You know, I was fortunate to make it 35 years before I was out of the business, but a lot of guys get fired in their first job and don't get another chance. Yeah. Um, I always had this. I was going to do the best job I could and things could fall where they may. All right, I've heard a ton of your NBA stories uh, over the last couple of years. If I said to you, what's that? What's Give me the moment. If they said, hey, K.O., what's <laughs> K.O.? <laughs> I'm laughing because I know one story, and I don't think you're going to go there. No, I'm not going you, there. Yeah, you shouldn't go there. Um, a memorable, iconic moment. That's how I'll ask you. What's Give me an iconic moment that you had when you reflect back on your on your years in the league. Like, what, what would you point to? My second year at uh... – at Detroit, I never enjoyed a group of guys more than the guys we coached at Detroit, mm. and they were they were just they all get along for the most part. And by the way, and so as a reminder, you'll part. know the roster obviously, but that's Ben Wallace, that's uh, um, uh, Tayshawn Prince, it's Chauncey Billups, it's Rip Hamilton, Chucky Atkins, Chucky Atkins, you know, Corliss Williams. Sheed on that team, or no? Rasheed came right? the next year. We got okay. fired after. After actually winning the Eastern Conference, losing in the Eastern Conference Finals. Elton Campbell, was he on the Pistons at that point? Was... Uh, no. Okay. No, we didn't have him. Okay. But we played at Philly in a second-round game, a game six. And we won that game in a really, really hard-fought slugfest. Like, nowadays, you can't touch anybody. No. College or yeah. pro. At that point, 15 years ago... You can get on, guys. You can still go after each other as players. There's hard fouls, stuff like that. And I remember Eric Snow, yeah, who had a great habit of coming through the lane, and if a guy was sitting there to take a charge, he'd stick his knee up in their face. And he did it to Ben Wallace. Wrong and guy cut to do ben. it to. I'll never forget Ben coming over. I said, you all right, buddy? He goes, we ain't losing this fucking game, KO, I'll tell you that. And he went out, blocked shots. I mean, to me, that was like these guys pulled together. And to win at Philly with Larry Brown coaching and Iverson, nobody realizes how tough Iverson was. Just going to ask you about that. Or how good he was. This guy was phenomenal. I mean, like – Nowadays, it's Steph Curry and – All right, all right. I'm so glad you brought this up. But but Iverson was a different breed (laughs) of player. yeah. Iverson was like, you could do, like, we'd try to drive him baseline, he wouldn't let it happen. We'd try to drive him middle, he wouldn't let it happen. He was 
I mean, I'd like to know how many times Allen Iverson was knocked to the floor in his career and got right back up and kept playing. Iverson. Okay, there's been a huge debate. Uh, you know, we got a bunch of guys that are NBA fans that are in the office, and a lot of younger guys. And, they, you know, they see Steph Curry, yeah. and they see the MVPs. They've seen these one, you know, a, a, an NBA title. I get that. But I have contended that I, I'd rather Iverson than Steph Curry at their peak. And people always forget, Allen Iverson was a an MVP guy, almost single-handedly led his team to the NBA Finals where they lost to the yep. Lakers. Um, they won game one, and the Lakers won four straight after that. That was Shaq. That was Kobe. Um, I say almost single-handedly because they had Theo Ratliff on that team, and then they traded for Dikembe Mutombo, and they get a defensive guy that's in there. Right. But by and large, offensively, it was one on five with, with Iverson yeah. on that team. Yeah. Would and you, everybody loaded up to Iverson also. For sure. And yeah. this is, to your point, this is when you could actually go at guys. Um, would you, at their peak, and I don't know if Curry's at his – peak or reached his peak, I would argue that maybe he's he's in that peak th- these years now. Uh, would you take Iverson over over Curry? I would personally because he's more my kind of guy. Like, yeah. I, I have great respect for Steph Curry's abilities. Is he the best shooter you've ever seen? Yeah, I think you right? have to. He's got yeah, us. Yeah, he's, Who, all right, before... He, ma- he makes... Half his shots look like trick shots. I yeah. mean, it, the guy has an unbelievable ability... I don't know what kind of guy he is. Yeah. Um, I just, I that was a different time period. I wouldn't bet against Allen Iverson. Yeah. With anybody, I mean that guy was tough. I mean tough. Previous to Curry, who would you say the best shooter you saw was? I had a few guys in my mind. So His I'm... coach, Steve Kerr. That's a good one. And you oh, had Steve him. Kerr was a great, yeah. great. Steve Kerr had people don't realize what a phenomenal NBA career Steve Kerr had. He won five titles. Yeah. I think he's still the leading three point shooter in the history of the NBA. It's the I, I it, it's either him, it's Ray Allen, maybe Steph, Curry's got it now. Yeah. But Steve Curry or Steve, Steve Kerr, Kerr, yeah, unbelievable shooter. So, Kurt, anything from Arizona when you were there that that bared that out? Well, he Steve Kerr, I think, went one Pac-12, well, Pac-10 season at the time. He went one Pac-10 season. He either had one or two turnovers the whole season. Well, seriously? I'd have to look it up. I'll get McGrady to look it up tomorrow. We were 17-1 wow. in back-to-back years. Yeah. Well, not back to back, seventeen and one, and then Steve got hurt, and we barely made the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Then Steve came back, and we went seven. No, it was after that, seventeen and one, his senior year, and then seventeen and one the next year. I, you know, when I asked you about that iconic moment, uh, it's a cool story with Ben Wallace. You know where I thought you were going to go? Uh, Palace Auburn Hills, the brawl, because you were on that. Staff. That was yeah. That I was with the Pacers, Pacers at yeah. the time. Yeah, that was. I don't know if that's iconic. That was, that was infamous. Yeah, no, that might be the better way to. I mean, it that. was that was a terrible that was terrible for basketball. Yeah, it's awful. that was, you know, it's, you know, we we just had the the sin and shame of it all. We had just beat the world champions by fifteen on their court. Yeah, I would have sworn we were going to win the NBA title. Two minutes later, we got a shit throw going on, like big time. Which derailed, it derailed the Pacers. Rick Carlisle did a fantastic job that year. Yeah. 
after we lost those guys of getting us to the playoffs and winning a round in the playoffs. I don't think people realize how talented those teams were. And maybe people don't remember, but Ron Artest, who, by the way, I think people think of Ron Artest the way they think of him, kind of like this Looney Bin dude. But yeah. Ron he was a play. guy, he could play. I mean, he yeah. was a guy that, he was a different version of Kawhi Leonard now. Yeah. I think it, not, maybe not at yeah. that level, but he could get you close yeah. to 20 points and stop you from yeah. getting your 20. Well, we had Jermaine O'Neal. J.O., yeah. Jamal Tinsley, Artest, Reggie Miller. Steven Jackson. I'm surprised you didn't say Reggie for for a shooter. Great shooter. Yeah. Yeah, great shooter. You know, right there with those guys, Steph Curry seems to be the most long-range. He's made ridiculous shots yeah. the norm now. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's maybe the yeah. best way to describe what we're seeing like from you, Curry. I think for a while everybody was surprised. They'd be like, hey, did that just go in from 35? Yeah. It's the end of every quarter now. Yeah. You don't even think about it. It's not a surprise. No, it's almost no, expected. No. But we had a we had Jeff Foster on that team, Scott Pollard. We we had a really really good team that could have won an NBA title, and then it you know got derailed yeah. right before Christmas. Oh, it really was a shame because uh, that team did for have, everybody. It was yeah, yeah. for everybody. Um, for sure. All right, Kale. I know um, it's a wrap for us. Uh, I can't thank you enough for for stopping by the show. Anytime, my man. You um, know that it, it has been uh, it's been long overdue. But I wanted to make sure at least I got you in studio. Um, had Lamar heard on last week, one of our our colleagues here at Pac-12 Network, who uh, who was good enough to stop by with us. But absolute blast with you. Hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode. And don't forget, if you continue to uh, uh, rate, review, and subscribe the podcast, greatly appreciate it if you hit that subscribe button. Not to mention if you push it out on social media, we absolutely love that riding solo uh, on that side of uh, of this show in terms of the promotion so any help you can get on Twitter you can follow us at Mike underscore yam at give me a sensei that is the new Twitter handle KO are you on uh, I'm not on any social media <laughs> at all not gonna happen although I, I have told you this if you were on social media it would be the most followed account uh, in sports and I wouldn't have any knew. other job uh, that is People only knew what was actually late said. night. Late night tweeting would do me in. <laughs> say what you think. <coughs> That's really what it comes down yeah, to. Yeah, don't do that in this day and age. Don't uh, anybody say what they think. I uh, appreciate all you guys uh, continuing to listen to the show, and we'll catch you next week. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.